You are listening to Fresh Tracks Weekly. Just know that there's also a video portion to this podcast, uh, so you can check that out on Randy Newberg Hunter YouTube channel. It will be posted there every week. Last week I was on vacation, so there was no Fresh Tracks Weekly last week, but I was out hunting turkeys with my dad. We had a great time. It was, it was really fun. Uh, despite the weather, not exactly cooperating. The roads were a bit of a mess, but we still managed to find some birds. My dad ended up sneaking up on a pretty big group of turkeys, and uh, there was a big tom, but it was about 70 yards out, and then he had three jakes walk right up to him. And they started putting and kind of looking at him, and so he figured, you know, well, it's either this or nothing. So took one of the jakes, and then frantically was telling me to come up there. So I ran up there, and there was one beat, another one of them was beaten up on his bird. He's like, there's, there's another one there. And so I shot that and we doubled up and I don't care about shooting Jake's or Tom, whatever. It's just, I have fun turkey hunting, just getting out and, and being out in the springtime. Don't get me wrong. It's given the choice. I definitely like calling one in and shooting a big Tom, but I'd rather to shoot one than not get one at all because uh, I really like eating them. Other than uh, chasing turkeys, we also got some spring skiing in. We hiked up this mountain and had a terrifying ski down. We hiked around and found some bell nights, which essentially are prehistoric squid butts. Uh, yeah, anyway, just had a great time last week. Other fun things, Dale was also out chasing turkeys. Uh, they almost got it done, but just couldn't quite close the deal. He ended up calling in multiple toms right to a fence line and they just wouldn't cross the fence. Uh, classic turkey scenario there. Michael's continued on his fishing kick. Michael, how many days have you fished? Yesterday was my 56th day fishing, um, including ice fishing, including 30 minute sessions, but the goal is 200 days this year. I think I'm gonna hit it like well before the end of the year. And yeah, just been trying to get out as much as I can. I've been learning a ton. That's for sure. And I've also been getting my butt handed to me, but 200 days, it's the quest for it. I've been logging every single day in my journal too. So trying to learn a bunch and uh, I'm on day 56. Today will be 57. My goodness. Also check out this video. See if you can, uh, Michael posted this on his Instagram. See if you can count how many fish are in this, in this drone clip. Pretty crazy. There is a ton stacked in there. Super cool perspective. We also got to cook up that, that turkey. I uh, parted out the legs from the, the carcass. I always throw the carcass on the Traeger. It's just hard to beat uh, smoked turkey. And then uh, the legs, braise them down and cooking that for lunch for the crew. Gonna make some pulled turkey tacos. It's kind of turned into my favorite thing from turkey is the legs and thighs. It amazes me that some people don't keep the legs and thighs. So good if you do it this way. On to some headlines. Uh, so desert bighorns. These are one of those species that I degenerately gamble on applying for tags. But I just found out that I didn't draw a desert bighorn tag in Colorado or New Mexico, despite having like a 0.06% chance. I mean, I'm not very good at math, but I figured if I applied for both states, I'd at least draw one of those. But anyway, the headline is that Andrew Jones, a research manager in Arizona for the Arizona Game and Fish, him and his colleagues published a study looking into desert bighorns, the type of landscape cover that they use, and uh, noted the circumstances surrounding their deaths. So they had radio telemetry collars. They might have had GPS collars on the study too, I'm not uh, for sure. But anyway, they uh, were following these bighorns around, seeing what was killing them. And the particular interesting thing was lion predation. So they found that uh, one of the things they found in the telemetry was that sheep 
tend to prefer more open areas where they can see a lot, which makes sense. They also went on to theorize that the years of fire suppression of putting out forest fires has led to an increased amount of brushy areas, giving lions more areas to hide and predate on bighorns, which also seems like a pretty interesting theory. Uh, because mountain lions and bighorns evolved together on the landscape, the landscape potentially looked very different from how it looks now. They also talked about how the larger groups of bighorns were a lot less likely to get predated on than smaller groups, uh, leading them to recommend wildlife managers when they are in the future putting more bighorns back in if they're doing a reintroduction or translocation to maybe think about doing bigger groups to reduce the likelihood of, of lion predation. Uh, this is pretty interesting because lions have been noted in several, in, in several cases of uh, really knocking back bighorn herds, especially like new or small populations uh, when you're trying to re-establish them in an area and uh, you know whatever reason it, they're able to key in on bighorns whether it's a all, you know not enough prey availability from other things or yeah I don't know it's super fascinating to think about how the landscape has changed and how it might be affecting how effective lions are killing killing bighorns. Next up, we have e-bikes. So electronic bikes have been all the rage in the hunting community over the last few years, especially amongst chunky hunters who don't like to hike. Forest Service just finalized their directive, which clarifies where e-bikes are allowed on forest land. Uh, basic synopsis for this is that the main policy is that e-bikes will be managed similar to motorbikes. They'll be allowed to be on any motorized trails, uh, but prohibited on non-motorized trails. But they are allowing the local forest service offices to consider new opportunities for e-bikes. They're not lumping them into a pedal bike and they're not lumping them into a motorbike necessarily. They are gonna allow forests, the local forest, to decide if they wanna have certain trails that are open, closed, however they wanna do it, but they're gonna involve the public. So public will have comment periods and, you know, kind of have a, what makes sense for the stakeholders in a given area, which is pretty cool. Transferring federal land to state hands. This is an idea that continues to rise up and it usually gets knocked back down. So the latest iteration is in the form of Utah's Mike Lee introducing a bill that would allow state and local governments to purchase federally managed land. So BLM forest, it would allow state governments to purchase that land to be used in housing developments. There's been a lot of different attempts at this and different marketing tactics that pitch the same general idea that is essentially to transfer federal lands to the states because the states will manage them better. So it depends on what your definition is. From a purely immediately profitability standpoint, sure, those states can sell those lands and make a bunch of money, make a quick buck. Most state land boards are directed to manage lands for a profit. But from the viewpoint of a public land hunter, fisherman, recreational user, transferring federal lands to the states rarely benefits this user group because many states don't allow public access on their lands, or if, you, if they do, there might be fees, or you can't camp, you can't start a campfire. There's a lot of different things with state lands, and they're just generally managed in a different way. I get it from the standpoint of making money. Yes, these, these states can make more money off this land, likely. Uh, but some of them are in it for a quick buck, and that's not a long-term plan. If you sell that land, make sure yeah, you have the money right now, but you don't have that asset moving into the future. This bill from Mike Lee probably doesn't have enough support to gain any traction to go anywhere, but it's a friendly reminder that this idea is not going away anytime soon, and it's going to keep popping up. So Montana had quite the fiasco last week when they announced the draw results for deer and elk. Uh, not long after they were posted, there was rumblings that there was a glitch in the draw. 
Uh, I started sweating because I had finally drawn a limited entry elk permit after 20 years of applying, burnt 19 bonus points on it, and I thought it was about to be taken away from me. Uh, also, my wife drew, same one. We party applied, but luckily for me, it didn't affect me. Uh, but here's a little bit of a story of what happened. This is a simplified version. It all started uh, when the director of Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, Hank Warsak, pushed for simplification of Montana's hunting regulations. Long story short, a bunch of upset sportsmen, frustrated biologists, and a confused commission, we now have simplified regulations that are about 150 pages long. Most of the people who were in the know and have been following the changes understood the rules for applying. But if you're not a psycho that, you know, follows all of this like us, uh, you might have just briefly read the regulations and uh, you might have messed up your application. So basically, if you applied for two districts when you were only supposed to apply for one district, you were tossed out of the draw. Uh, you weren't included at all. So now, Director Warsak decided that people who got kicked out of the draw this week will get a second chance in a redraw where he is allocating 10% more tags in each affected unit to be given out. Many sportsmen are pretty upset about this because the affected hunting districts already had an increase in quotas this year. So the extra 10% on top of that is gonna be even more pressure on elk that receive pretty heavy public land pressure, which often ends up pushing them to private land. So it'll be interesting to see. In Alaska, there has been a big closure for caribou and moose in several game management units. Initially, it was proposed to shut down 60 million acres of land to the vast majority of hunters. The final agreed upon closure is in theory a compromise. It's less total acreage than that 60 million, but critics have claimed that most of the areas that are closed is where the majority of the game is. So for this topic, we're gonna get Randy and we're gonna do a deeper dive. Deeper dive on ANILCA, or the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act. Yes, and, and much very more. complicated. It's very complicated. Um, yeah, and I just want to start with a disclaimer that I'm pretty naive on this. I'm trying to, this, this whole process is myself trying to educate myself more on this and understand it because yep. Alaska is just way different, different. than pretty much every <laughs> other state and yeah. how they, I mean, well, they're similar in some respects and then very different in other respects, I guess. Yeah. It's, I, I, I'll do, I'm the same with you, Marcus. I've been reading on this, trying to understand it better, and I still don't have my brain. I don't even feel like I've started to know what to wrap, what I'm wrapping my brain around right. on some of this. Yeah, and it's hard, too, because, I mean, we're not residents of Alaska. We don't live right. in these areas, so yeah. it's hard for us to really have a say, but it's like I still want to educate myself and try to understand why these decisions are happening, why it's yeah. huge amounts of landscapes that yeah. uh, the management's being altered on. So. And so summarize it, what is happening? What, what has us in this quandary? Well, they just uh, shut down non-subsistence hunters on a large swath of land. I haven't figured out that the total acreage is, because it was millions, like, as millions, of, millions and millions of acres. Millions of acres, yeah. As a compromise from the initial proposal, which was around 60 million acres, is two game management units, 23, unit 23 and 26A, in, on the Arctic Slope in Alaska. Yeah. And so... And so, for people listening, it's not a resident, non-resident issue. It's a subsistence, non-subsistence yes. issue, regardless of whether you're an Alaska resident or not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, I think we'll, maybe this is a good time to back up and go into the history of how this whole system got set up. So 
I think there was a little bit before that, but the main thing that happened was in 1980, Jimmy Carter signed the yep. Anilka yep. Act or whatever. And so it basically was designed to recognize the significance of traditional Alaska Native and non-Native non subs subsistence uses as a cultural value. Sorry, I'm trying to read off my notes here. Yep. But uh, yeah, I'm probably, and along those lines, I'm probably going to get some of the nomenclature wrong, but I think a largely I'll refer to it is like the subsistence board because right. what happened is they set up a kind of local groups in the areas in rural Alaska, some mm -hmm. of the stuff super remote. And then those groups funnel up to a regional council. Right. And then those regional councils funnel up to the subsistence board. Yep. And this is all under the federal government, right? which is different than state. the state government, which typically are the ones who are managing wildlife resources. Right. Under the 10th Amendment, yeah. states retain, uh, 10th Amendment of the Constitution, states retain all rights not granted to the federal government. And what the courts have held time and time again, and this goes to why we can discriminate in favor of residents against non-residents, mm -hmm. is states retain that right. Right. And so it, we're starting to get this at least yeah. on the outside, well, it looks kind of mixed up in this. Right, decision. and so, yeah, because, like, the federal government, a lot of times they're managing the land. Right. Like, their federal land, so the BLM. Like, in Alaska, the main examples would be BLM, Bureau of Land Management, Bureau of Indian Affairs, Fish Wildlife Service, National Park Service, yep. um, and Forest Service, some right. Forest Service, too. But, uh, yeah, it all amounts to 157 million acres of federal land in, in which the subsistence board can have significant influence on not only and that's the, this is the significant thing with alaska it's not only the land that they are dictating stuff to but it's the wildlife as well the natural the other natural resources right. which yeah. typically they have less control over the wildlife because that's right yeah like we're talking about with the north american model and the public trust doctrine the states typically manage the wildlife yeah so so yeah. the decision says that non subsistence hunters are precluded from hunting caribou in units in these parts of units 23 and 26 right that's the decision that came from the board right and so that includes all not all alaska residents who don't live in that right. immediate vicinity so if you live in anchorage right. or Juneau or fairbanks yeah. You are not considered a subsistence qualified person for that area. For that area, yeah, yeah, and so that's the that's the big kicker, I think. And uh, I was going to give an example of kind of give it a little context, and I want to make it clear that I'm not complaining, but just as this no, is this it, kind of like an explanation of my experience with it. So I drew a special permit in Alaska mm -hmm. last year as a non-resident. So that was through the state's regulations, the state set up game management. Mm -hmm. So I had to apply. I had to get really lucky to draw that permit. Mm -hmm. And it was for an archery-only tag for a bull moose. With 50 inches or four brow tines. Right. So it has to be a significantly mature animal. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of rules in order for me to do that. Um, and yeah, I, had, I could only use archery equipment. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, at the same time, the subsistence hunters for the area, they could use rifles. Mm -hmm. And they didn't they have antler restrictions. They could shoot any bull, I believe. Right. And yeah. so, again, it's like, it's not complaining, but that's this kind of, with you have these federal regulations, the subsistence regulations that are concurrently going on with the state regulations, right. me as a non-resident or even the Alaska residents. It's like right. there's and yeah, it it gets right. very complicated for yeah. sure. And, and I I just want to give the qualifier that I don't think anybody is complaining about 
subsistence hunting. It, it's like, this is what a lot of people in these remote areas rely upon for their food. They, they aren't just going down to the grocery store. Right. So, well, and that's, that's these like the are big really complicated kicker. things. That's the huge kicker, in my opinion, is like, until we, you live somewhere in a remote area and like you're literally relying on those animals to feed yourselves, mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's the big thing. It's like hard to relate to that. It's hard to put yourself in that shoes of like yeah. saying, because what I'm about to dive into, which is like, I feel like it, almost the other side of it is the fact that like the resource, the caribou herd can likely sustain, or mm-hmm. very, very likely, is it's not an issue to have non-residents or the non-subsistence users hunting that herd for the overall right. health of the animals. Right. And so yeah. that's usually what I, I, when I'm looking at a situation, I'm like, well, are we harming the actual resource? Are we harming mm-hmm. the caribou herd as a, to- as, as a whole? Mm-hmm. And, and I think when people start to look at numbers, sometimes they get confused too because the Western Arctic caribou herd, which is the one in question, mm-hmm. is at like 250,000 right now. They've yes. been up to 500,000. Right. So when you look at it that way, like, oh, my God, they're way down. But caribou are cyclic. So that's mm-hmm. whatever. Fa- I mean, there are probably some factors that aren't great that are causing the decline. But that's not a huge surprise, I guess, mm-hmm. because the, they, they do fluctuate. Right. And they've decided, like, collectively that, and I'm not sure if these numbers came from um, federal or state agencies, but kind of the consensus is that herd can sustain 10,000 to 14,000 animals being killed every year through through hunter harvest. Yeah. And currently the non-subsistence users, or like, I mean, currently as in past tense, the last few years only kill several hundred. Right. Up to maybe five, eight, I think 800 was like the most in the last 10 Mm -hmm. years, I think, which is a super small amount of that like available harvest. So the numbers aren't the issue. What the subsistence hunters on the ground, the main concern is the altered path of the migration. Like they're moving these animals to different areas by flying aircraft in, or there was mentions of people shooting the lead animals mm-hmm. and causing the migration to shift. And so that's the main concern. And again, not being on the ground, it's like hard to know Nobody like knows. what really is, like, is that true? I don't know, but it's just like, I can sympathize to some extent with, again, like if you're living off the land. <laughs> Yeah. It's just hard to put yourself in that shoe. But then I think I think some people would, I'm sure that there is abuses of that program as well, mm-hmm. which people will mention. It's right. just like, and it's just hard. You could, it, like, whether or not someone really needs that animal to, there are plenty of them who do, yeah. I guess, is what I should say. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I, I think oh, this, this is like a caldera of boiling issues probably as complicated as we'll find in North America. States' right versus federal rights. The landowner's right, in this case, the federal government, to say, okay, you manage your seasons however you want, but we're saying what can happen on our land. Right. Subsistence versus non-subsistence. And the outside pressures that are putting more heat to this fire are a lot of the studies are saying as the recent trends of warmer climate, warmer seasons, warmer periods have not been beneficial to caribou. Right. Well, if that trend continues, 
w this is a much bigger issue than just subsistence versus non-subsistence. Right. Sure. We also, most Alaskans are reporting that this winter we are coming out of is one of the most difficult winters they've ever had in that part of Alaska. And as caribou numbers have dropped, there have been some shifts to subsistence hunting for moose. Mm -hmm. And moose are going to take a serious beating up there with this hard winter. Right. So... <laughs> Yeah, you start adding all these things together. Well, and that's another thing in that decision. It was also shutting down the moose harvest for the non-subsistence users as well. So that's, I just don't, I'm, not, I'm way less familiar with what's mm -hmm. going on with the moose population up there. I yeah. believe it's in a big decline as well. So, but yeah, and mostly sticking with the caribou example. Mm -hmm. I guess I just have a little bit more knowledge on it. But And that's, that the subsistence board is mostly focused on the caribou issue too. Gotcha, mm -hmm. yeah. So, but here's the interesting part within the state lands, how, you know, the very few state lands that are there, that subsistence rule does not apply because the subsistence board only has rule over what happens on federal lands. Right. And there is a significant amount of state land in Alaska too. Yeah. I so. mean, still, I think the majority is federal. Yeah. But yeah. The overwhelming <laughs> right, yeah. majority. I, I would not plan my hunt to Alaska based on hunting state land. Right. So, yeah, it's just a, it's an interesting topic because I was thinking about this, and I know it's not exactly a fair analogy, but I'm like, you know, if you went to some rural town in eastern Montana or eastern Wyoming, and you yeah. and you had the local hunters mm -hmm. decide what rules who gets were in to place, hunt, who here. gets to hunt, they're probably going to say <laughs> just me. Yeah, but then <laughs> me and my friends. And I know it's not fair because those people are probably less like, I don't know. Yeah, they're it, not, they're, they, it is different because they're not subsistence. Right. Like these, some of these yes, folks are. Yes, yes. And so, but I mean, I think just using that as an example, that like with, they would probably make that decision. But then when you start to involve more people, like, you know, there's small businesses and the econ small town economy, <laughs> when they start the to get The motels and the restaurants. Right, they're going to have a different feeling about it. Right. And it's... In Alaska, that's it's different because you have these outfitters, and they might not necessarily live there, but they're affected. You have tourism industries that might be affected to some mm -hmm. extent, and then you just—it's just—I don't know. I, it's I think a what, very complicated issue. I think that's the point that most can take from this, Marcus. Is every one of these decisions that we talk about that we, you know, try to soothe the friction that might be there, they are complicated issues. They're not going to be solved in, you know, one decision or one easy, oh, we'll fix that. Right. And it brings forth so many different laws, regulations, precedent, cultures, uh, stakeholders. You know, when you're talking subsistence and someone's livelihood, I've not yet heard anybody on either side discount the importance of subsistence right. hunting and what that means to those folks living there. For sure. It's more about how to, uh, ooh, is this like the first little spot and now it's going to become yep. here? And then, oh, you know, oh, this is what they've done in Alaska. Now the federal government is going to start saying in the lower 48, hey, we're going to close national forests to elk hunting. Yeah. And I, yeah, so. and I get, I, again, I get it, but it just, my, one of my main concerns too is if you don't, if people have no reason to go up there and you don't have other user groups coming from, 
Anchorage or Fairbanks or these other population centers or from the lower 48, like, do you lose interest in that land as a whole mm -hmm. where people just yes. stop caring about the Arctic Slope? And then, I'm, like, for the bigger picture, for what's best for the long term, mm -hmm. you know, all encompassing for the landscape, for the people who live there, for the wildlife, like, what's the best, op what's the best option for that? And, yeah. like, that's, I don't know, but right. it, it just feels like if no one's allowed, you know, not no one, but if, it, if less, the less people that are allowed to experience that mm -hmm. location. The fewer advocates it will have. Right. Ab th that's proven over time. Yeah. The more you decrease the f people tied and vested to what that long-term beneficial outcome is, yeah. the less influence you're going to have. The, the, the worse outcome in the long run you will probably have. Yeah, yeah I definitely going to keep following this and yeah. try to, I want to just continue to learn more about it. Um, it's yeah, just, there's just so many pieces of the story and so much that I didn't understand. And mm -hmm. I've been trying to figure this all out in the last week, basically, of like reading up on all of the things to how we got to where we are. But yeah. there's, a, there's a really good podcast uh, that your mountain podcast, you've been on that. I've been on it. Yep. Those guys did a good job of Dave breaking down Nephi. this yeah. issue. Yeah. Go to the It's Your Mountain uh, I think they call it Your Mountain. Your no, Mountain podcast, your mountain. number. it was number 131. Yeah. No, it was a good... Yeah, Dave a good. and Nephi are, are great guys. Yeah. Uh, they really get into stuff like this. So. Yeah, continue educating myself and yeah. continue to... I think that's a, just what you said there, Marcus, is part of the message we're trying to get to people is these are complicated issues. Inform yourself. Yep. Do your own research. Try to understand it because if you just rely on what your buddy tells you or you know, some Facebook headline clip. That's never the full story. Right. And then one, it's easy, super easy to get really fired up and be like, this is it. You know, this is BS. <laughs> like, I don't like, you know. But it's like, I always try to take a step back, look right. at it from the other side, like figure out what's going on. There's, right. a, there's always more to it than, than yeah. uh, the initial reaction when you see a headline. Yeah. So. If, any, if anybody wants a test project to have to be the roadmap or learn how to absorb and take information and try to make a, a, a decision. There's nothing that's come down the pipe in the last five years that is as complicated as this. Yeah. Well, yeah, thanks for talking to me about mean, it. And uh, if people have some good, I'm, I'm really interested in other resources to read up on this. I've been trying to yeah. understand it also if any any of you have good stuff send it to weekly at freshtracks.tv very curious yeah lots to learn <laughs>